You're listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Brian Starr, I appreciate you coming on, man. Good to be here today, Brandon. I should say Dr. Brian Starr. I appreciate you being on. You know, my mom named me Brian. She didn't name me doctor, so it's okay to call me Brian. That's it. But that's I always think it's awesome to, to call you Dr. Starr, but you are an economist, I am an economist. That's and I've I think I've talked about you probably in half of our podcast to have you on. So I'm excited about this because I think uh, having an economist and trying to undef- or define what the entire world and how it operates is such an interesting subject for mm. me. I bet it's I don't know. We'll mm. see how this thing you know fires off today, but uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun for me. I'm so excited for you to be here, but. Um, I wanted to dive into a couple of subjects and I know you already have like notes down. So this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be interesting. So I, I think you have a couple of ideas where you want to go with it too. It sounds like. It Absolutely. Like. But uh, most interested in, in answering the questions that you have, Brandon, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. That's good. So, so kind of introduce yourself where your background is. I mean, cause you had a stint in, in wealth management in Austin as yeah. well. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in South Texas, was born in Austin, uh, raised south of San Antonio, and uh, went to Abilene Christian as an undergraduate, got my MBA from the University of Texas at Austin, and then went into uh, retirement plan consulting. So uh, the firm that I worked for uh, originally was Austin-based, and we just dealt with mostly Texas-based employers. So we would help set up foods, uh, set, set up uh uh, 401k plans for for uh, companies like Dell Computer Corporation, Whole Foods Market, these these that were located in the uh, uh, greater Austin and San Antonio corridor, uh, some Dallas, some Houston. Eventually, the firm was requ- uh, uh, acquired uh, by some venture capitalists, and then we were part of a nationwide chain. So we would help companies establish uh, their retirement plans, and then we would uh, help them select the investments that were appropriate for their employees uh, to choose from, and then enroll the employees uh, in those 401k plans, typically 401k plans, uh, to help them uh, plan for their retirement. So I have nine years of background in management of the financial services industry. I was blessed to move up here to Lubbock, get my PhD from Texas Tech University in Economics, and uh, I've worked for almost 20 years at Lubbock Christian University, both teaching and in an administrative capacity. Recently been assigned as uh, the provost for Oklahoma Christian University, a sister school up in Edmond, Oklahoma. So I'll assume duties there on July 1st, but uh, really happy to be here today and, and discuss uh, a little bit about the American economy. That's that's such a great intro on it. But you also, here at Alpha Capital, our firm, we're in Pursuing Alpha, which is kind of like our, our podcast arm of it. But you've been working with us for, what, a year and a half now? Yeah, yeah, almost two. Almost two years. And so you, you've been such a valid, I mean, a, a value to us just in the simple fact that it gives us a whole different lens to look through the market in. And so and I don't think a lot of retail investment advisors have the capability of it, having an in-house economist um, to actually measure the markets kind of gives that. So it's been such a blessing to have you inside of here. But I wanted to break down what economist is, because I think a lot of people don't even quite understand what an economist is. Yeah. That's a great question. Right. And then go into how does that play into the financial markets? It's how it unfolds for me kind of on the mindset. It's like, like, what's economists and what do you actually do? That is a great question. So, uh, yeah, it, economics actually uh, springs from a Greek word, oekonomikos, which means a course no one wants to take. 
Now that's a, that's a joke, all right. It really means it really means household management. So you can go back to the classic writers like Xenophon, Xenophon, uh, Aristotle, and they use the word oeconomikos. How does one manage a household well? And so you can really trace the origin of uh, economics back to the classical world, and uh, but it really wasn't taken up much as a discipline until Adam Smith in 1776 uh, wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. And it's actually got a much longer and more expansive title, but uh, on this side of the pond, Thomas Jefferson's writing The Declaration of Independence, which is a document of political freedom. Adam Smith over in Scotland is writing The Wealth of Nations, which is a document of economic freedom. And he's just describing how the world works. And it is uh, it is a magnificent read. Now, some of it's really boring. You know, he, he can go off like most philosophers do on on tangents that that don't have a lot to do uh, with uh, with what we would consider to be relevant. But Adam Smith uh, makes uh, some absolutely breathtaking statements in that, and 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 one that that the Western world and in fact the Eastern the whole world has pondered since he wrote that over over two hundred years ago. And one of the statements he makes is uh, is about self-interest. Hmm. And uh, during the Middle Ages, especially in the Western world, uh, with the medieval Catholic Church uh, holding forth and people like Thomas Aquinas uh, being the primary thinkers, uh, had established the notion of a just price. What, what is a fair price and a right price so that one can – can not only do right by man, but do right by God. And I, as a Christian, I still believe that's a very important uh, point to consider, and we, we need to do all things uh, in a way that is right. But Smith comes along, and, and he, event, he just takes a clear-eyed and cold, hard look at the economy and the way things go. And, and remember, this is in the Industrial Revolution in Britain, and he's seeing economic progress being made, the likes of which the world had never seen. And he said, it's it's not really from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, or the brewer that we get our dinner, but from our appeal to their own self-interest, their own self-love. And in fact, by looking out for one's own interest, one ends up looking out for the interest of others. others. Yeah. Because the only way I can get something from you that I want is to give you something that you on, he met a really profound statement that said, really, the people who look out for their own interest often do more good for society than the people who are trying to look out for the interest of others. That's that's a, you know, problematic phrase right there in today's economy well, or in today's it, it, world that, that you might get shunned from a couple of political parties by saying that. It, it, you, you could be. And as a Christian, I wrestle with that, too. Uh, and re- and remember, you know, as a, if you're a believer, there's a larger game than just an economic game. But think about the rationale before you dismiss it. No, the I ra- don't dismiss. I agree with it. I the, think there's if you do self-interest, as long as you have a servant mindset to do it. Yeah, I think it serves both both purposes and both prevail. Well, later on, economists would basically uh, say, Wilfredo Pareto and some others would say. No one knows you, Brandon, better than you know yourself. And so if I try to do something good for you, I might hit or, or miss. And we know this is true. You've gotten gifts sure. where you received the gift and said, 
Thank well, you. <laughs> and, and it went in the closet, never to be seen again. Right. Whereas, it, whereas if I had, uh, if I had sold you something, then you kn- you know you want to buy that, and and, and you're going to buy buy something from me. I'm going to buy something from you. It's going to uh, comport with our own taste, our own preferences, and you know yours better than I know yours. I know mine better than you know mine. And that's what that that's at the heart of what Smith was saying. So it, it was it was such a breathtaking work that that for a long time economists thought that he said everything that needs to be said about that matter. Mm. Uh, and yet, uh, so economics was really founded on microeconomic principles. We break down economics into two. Uh, major sections. So tell me what's microeconomics compared to macroeconomics? Microeconomics, which is largely what Smith was writing about and what, and, and what was really uh, prevailed until about the 1940s, is the study of individual firms, individuals, and how they interact with each other and how they do the best to get what they want. That's microeconomics. Macro really didn't come into being in a really strong way until the 1940s, and we had just been through a world war. We had just mm-hmm. been through a horrific uh, recession, and uh, again, across the pond, John Maynard Keynes, writing uh, in, in Great Britain, uh, wrote uh, the first real treatise on macroeconomics, and he said there, it's not just the behavior of individual f- uh, individuals and firms – but there's something larger at play, and, and specifically the government should come in and, and, and play an active role. Whether you agree or disagree, uh, Smith's, uh, Smith's work was then taken to another level by John Maynard Keynes, a brilliant mind who said uh, something that seemed original at the time. It's really not. It, it traces back to the Joseph narrative, uh, I would argue, in the book of Genesis, where Pharaoh had the dream of you know the seven – Great years followed by the seven lean years, and Joseph said, you really ought to store up during the good years mm-hmm. and then spend it during the lean years. John Maynard Keynes took up that theme, whether he was aware of it or, or not, I don't know. But he basically said the government's the biggest player in the economy, and so the, the government should run contracyclical. So if the, if the, if the economy is doing really well, the government should— be should, bearish. Yeah, the, the government should, should tax the people and slow things down and store it up. And then when the economy goes into recession, it should do the opposite. It should actually deficit spend. And so— uh, even out these business cycles, these natural business cycles, which by by at the end of the Great Depression, everybody was aware of. And John Maynard Keynes says, I think I have an answer for that. And the answer is it's the government. The government should run contracyclical. And as the 800-pound gorilla, it can help smooth things out. All right, so macroeconomics and microeconomics, but so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump and we're gonna jump all over this podcast because it's the things that's really interesting to me, and I think the current environments that we're in right now is relevant to this conversation. Is I in Harrison's in the room with this, which he always joins us in our podcast, just listening in with it. We've had a conversation about this. Is I am really fighting the Fed right now for the simple fact that I think the Fed and the government and the way they're treating debt right now is just borderline theft. Mm. I mean, it is so because we have such high inflation should be considered theft, right? In my perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is, is saying that if you can just in, with impunity print money – to devalue currency, it becomes either a tax or it becomes that you're actually 
a theft, right? And and we have to hold ourselves accountable. And I'm talking about citizens of a country mm-hmm. to our own physical responsibility, but yet the governments don't. And I think that point you just made that says, hey, you know, store it up in good years and, you know, drain it a little bit in bad years is relevant. But the problem that I think we've came into is like we're not storing anything it's right. deficit after deficit after deficit right and so i wanted to touch on briefly how the fed works mm-hmm. what is the fed right and how it's good and how it's bad because right now i just think a lot of americans are only seeing the bad yeah and there's a reason to and so let me confess my bias right now i'm a conservative uh fiscal and monetary policy i would have uh, never uh, guessed aficionado. that <laughs> so uh, i'm going to come from that bias there are good economists who disagree with me but uh, I, I very much agree with the sentiment that you're articulating and that a lot of people are feeling right now i i'm i'm a texan through and through and so i believe in limited role of government I don't disagree with John Maynard Keynes, but you just critiqued him by not critiqued him, but critiqued the practice of Keynesian economics by saying, but we're never storing anything up. If you go, you have to go back to about the year 2000. We're now in 2023. You have to go back to the year 2000 uh, before uh, uh, until you can find a year, if I recall, that the government actually ran a surplus and it Mm. took in more revenue than it spent. All other years, and we're talking about fiscal policy, your question was about monetary. We'll get to that in just a moment. Explain the difference between fiscal and monetary let, policy. Let, let's talk about that, yeah. So uh, fiscal policy is basically uh, what uh, the, the executive branch of the government and Congress are going to do with their spending plans and, uh, and their revenue plans. Monetary policy is what the Federal Reserve does and how it allocates money and how it prints money or how it takes money out of the economy. So how it inserts money into the economy or takes it out. And these two can work against each other, but typically they're designed to work hand in hand. So we've had, I would argue, expansive fiscal and monetary policy really since the 19, uh, late 1990s. And it, it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democratic administration, we've had very loose policy in terms of excess government spending, whether the economic cycle is on a downturn, as John Maynard Keynes said it should be, or whether it's on an upturn, the government has been taking in less in tax revenue than it has been spending. How much? Well, the delta right now, the difference is about, well, it's over $1 trillion a year. <sighs> the deficit on a yearly basis, the government's taking in about $1 trillion, uh, more than $1 trillion per year, less than it's bringing in in tax revenue. So, uh, the, but, the, but hold on, because you're saying that we're spending one trillion dollars more than we're taking in. We're spending more. Uh, if I if I misspoke, please. No, no, you said it right, me. but I want to define one other things in that. Okay, our our interest on our debt now is hazards about to exceed our actual tax revenue. Mm-hmm. Just our interest alone. Well, that's a frightening concept to think about, isn't it? And so that's not including the debt that we're adding to every single year on top of that. Well, we're going to talk about the debt ceiling in just a moment, I presume. And and, and, uh, Congress just voted to increase uh, the debt ceiling. And the debt ceiling is standing at what, about 31 uh, plus? 32 trillion. 32 trillion dollars. Again, trillions are hard to hard to even conceive, right? You, you know, 
uh, it, it's hard to even conceive of a million, but a, bi- a, a, a billion is incredible. A billion is a trillion. Uh, Isn't it something uh, like 336 <laughs> years if you did it by seconds? Yeah. It's and crazy. So, it's it's know, a, a, a massive billion. amount. Somebody check that for me, but I think I'm close on that. I read that report. If you took a trillion dollars and you actually converted it into minutes or seconds, or I think seconds. it's seconds. I think it's seconds. It's like 336 years. It's insanely a large number to kind of get of it a perspective of how much a trillion yeah. dollars. One trillion seconds in years is 31,709 calendar years. One that's trillion. A, that's a long time. Yeah. It's 31. One trillion seconds, not minutes. Seconds. One trillion seconds is how much? 31,709 years. 31,709 years. And we're 32 trillion in deficit. Yeah. We're spending in another debt. in debt, and we're spending another trillion every year in a, in a deficit which adds to the debt so let's let's distinguish between deficit and debt deficit is the amount we miss in any one year debt is the accumulation of all prior year deficits so we're missing in terms of we're spending more than we're taking in by over a trillion dollars per year and that's Mm. on top of 31 to 32 trillion dollars that we've already accumulated from the past now that sounds terrible and it is. Uh, let, let me put it in a little bit of perspective. Almost every household and firm does have debt, and most economists would agree that it's fine to have some level of debt. However, the levels of debt that we've reached of late are, are a little bit shocking. So it, it was around uh, the mid-2000s that we actually went in excess of a debt-to-GDP ratio of 100%. Right. All right? And, uh, and and so that was a big deal. And even some of the economists on the left were saying this might not end well. Remember that GDP, gross domestic product, is the sum of all of the nation's output for a year. And I'm thankful for this. Not all of our output goes to the government. Right. We need uh, the, the majority of our output is actually about two-thirds of it is actually spent by consumers. And then businesses – Uh, of course, play a huge role. The government should only be a small factor in that. But we owe now well over a full year's worth of total output, meaning if we just stopped right now and said, let's not eat or buy anything, let's let's not spend anything, we would owe well over a year's worth of our total output just to pay off the national debt. Now, is that, it paying off the natural debt, or is it paying off just the interest? Isn't our interest payments exceeding our GDP right now? Uh, the, the, or or is that not, tax revenue? It's our the, tax revenue I that we receive. Tax revenue. Tax Brandon. revenue. I would have to, yeah. We would have to check that. Can you look that. that up for me, Gus? Uh, we would have to check that, but uh, that, that should give us pause. Now, uh, to give some modicum of comfort, and I think that's a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, because we just I went down the deep hole of, yeah, uh, that, that of was, the scariest that was, thing. T- it's terrifying. Yeah. However, we're, we're not the worst country. You do have to compare ourselves to other nations. Japan's is uh, – ours is 120 percent plus. Uh, Japan's, though, is about 200 percent. So mm. there are other developed economies that are in worse shape than we are when we talk about the total debt uh, to the gross domestic product. So we're in right in line with some of the European nations right now. But isn't Japan been in a pretty bad economic crisis for like 20 20- 30 years and try closer much, to 40. Yeah. That, I mean, so and, and, this and is not that, that that's, uh, I think that's the point, which is at some point you've got to tax your citizens enough to pay for the interest on yesterday's party. That's what we're talking about. Right. In very and that's plain the debt terms. ceiling. 
that and that's the reason for the debt ceiling in my opinion now the debt ceiling actually goes back to world war one and, and congress saying we've got to take fiscal responsibility seriously so let's not borrow more than we can afford so we have an extra system of checks and balances in addition to congress having to approve what we spend they also have to do a second check of are we going to pay for it now with the debt ceiling because if the government doesn't have enough tax revenue to pay for the things that we are buying, whether it's national defense or, or transfer payments between individuals, and, and that's the bulk of our government spending is Social Security mm -hmm. uh, and Medicare and Medicaid. If we say, all right, we, we, are we going to pay for it? That's what the debt ceiling's about, asking, are we going to actually pay for those things that we voted on? And uh, most countries look at that spuriously and say that's a fundamentally flawed idea. If you say you're going to do it, you need to do it. I actually think it, it can be helpful. Uh, because it should give us pause to say, all right, how much money are we really spending here? And let, let's have that conversation one more time. And then that conversation just happened. And Brandon, I think uh, on the debt ceiling, it was the right, it was the right call to make. The consequences of the U.S. defaulting on its debt are, are uh, almost unthinkable. It, it could, it, it could have fairly devastating consequences, not only for the United States but around the world. Uh, and yet that check where we have to say, all right, do, are, are we really going to borrow even more money beyond what we've already borrowed? Uh, I think that's a good exercise. I think it's good on both sides of it. And I think we had to actually pass a debt uh, ceiling uh, reform inside of there to allow it to. I agree with you 100% on that. We couldn't have defaulted on there. We'd be downgraded as a country. We're already fighting with China and Russia right now to be mm -hmm. to maintain the dollar as the standard in the world. Mm -hmm. So that would uh, complicate it or probably weaken the, do the dollar's position if we defaulted. And that's that's a non-economist view of just me doing what I do in the day, day job. But I think it... I think that's a reasonable evaluation inside of it. Agreed. Inside of there on top of that, I also am concerned that when is it going to stop? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just raised the debt ceiling for two years and we're taking on $2 trillion every single year. So we're going to be in the same boat in 2025, right? In, in that, well, that, that's where you need to... Uh, what's that again? So the numbers for the interest payments... So in 2023, the uh, Congressional Budget Office projects interest payments will total $663 billion in the fiscal year. So it won't exceed our tax revenue. What it does exceed, and I think Dr. Starr mentioned it primarily, Medicaid and Social Security, those like income ones, it's like it's, gonna ex it's exceeding that this year. It'll total about $10.6 trillion over the next decade on just interest alone, though. So 2.6 trillion is about what 50% of our GDP, give or take, Dr. Stone? That's correct. Our, our current GDP right now is around 25, 26 trillion dollars. And so, uh, you're what we're effectively seeing, Brandon, I think this is puts a finger on it, uh, in, in just a very layman way. The government's simply becoming a bigger and bigger part of the economy. And uh, in America, we've typically been suspicious of too much concentrated power, but that's where we're going every time we make the United States government with its interest payments, with its welfare mm -hmm. transfer payments, with its uh, payments on things we all know the government needs to do, like defend our shores and build our roads. We're becoming more and more heavily weighted towards the public sector rather than the private sector. And that's what gives some of us who are on the more conservative side uh, a little bit of pause, uh, because if you ask, all right, what really drives value for the country? Certainly some government uh, spending does. Our wonderful military, good infrastructure, though the, the infrastructure is starting to deteriorate. 
a lot of the things that the government does, you, you could argue, don't drive a lot of net present mm. value. And that's really for the private sector and its creativity and its entrepreneurship. And as you take money out of uh, people's pockets and put it in the public sector just to pay for what we've already bought, you've got to ask, what implications does that have for the future uh, growth of our gross domestic product. We've historically averaged about 3%. China's coming off of twice or more than that. It's starting mm. to slow, too, because of demography, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But uh, I think that's the fundamental worry, that we're going to have to devote too much of our economic resource just to paying for interest on this debt. Yeah, and it keeps bad, but I, I think the concentration of power is what I'm really worried about. Mm -hmm. I, th I think we can always grow ourselves, or, or the U.S. is so resilient in our, mm -hmm. our innovation and us being able to grow yeah. an economy. I, I, I think that there's an ability for the government, for the Americans to actually do it. I think whenever you get concentrated power, and we're seeing this in our political environment mm -hmm. right now, it, it is petrifying. Like yeah. we're we're giving you know every single month that I think it was 300 million. Uh, last week we gave over to Ukraine. I'm not pro or against it. I, I, I'm not educated enough to, to make an evaluation on that war and how we should stand. But what I am concerned about is that w we have too many issues going on in the United States, and yet we're giving billions upon billions to a war that we shouldn't should or shouldn't be fighting is kind of that's the concerning and we just keep on printing money mm -hmm. right we're running a trillion dollar deficit but here's another 300 million here here's another billion dollars over here and it just it, it, it's almost like a kid in a candy store that can't stop yeah. and, and and you keep running down that that you know we're then a tax ourselves out of the middle class and and it's just going to be the oligarchs and the the poor and i think we're going to see that more and more drift come in there and you know something's going to give up and it's going to be weird and you're seeing this now you're seeing the consolidation of the banking industry because of this mm -hmm. and it's you know there's still uh, talking to uh one of our wholesalers came in yesterday we went to lunch with him and and he uh did all of the insurance for all the banks the the community and regional banks in texas for over 20 years and he's saying brian there's still 170 some odd banks that could fail in the next 90 days mm. and and i'm going really even after all of this and he goes no they're they're they have put themselves in such a bad position now with higher interest rates and so now we're talking about this is why i want to dive into what the fed is okay right because i think if the fed doesn't uh, he they're dancing on a razor and this is my point they a razor are. edge right if they don't raise interest rates, inflation's going to continue to go up. If they don't uh, turn around and go and lower interest rates, they could bankrupt the, the small, mid-sized banks. And now we're going into having a consolidation of 5, 10, 20 banks running the entire and that consolidation of power is scary. Yes. It is very scary. It is. So let's talk about the Federal Reserve. And I do not envy Jerome Powell or anyone who sits on the Federal Open Market Committee. But let, let, let's go back and unpack a little bit about what the Federal Reserve is, what they do, uh, and, and how that leads up to the present. So they, they've been around since about 1913 with the Federal Reserve Act. And and they're the central bank of the United States. They're the banker's bank, if you will. And so they loan money to banks if nobody else will deposit. They're there to inspire some confidence in the banking system. They have a dual mandate. That, that, that mandate is to go hand in glove with fiscal policy. That's what Congress and the executive branch are doing. Uh, in, in order to expand or contract our money supply, U.S. dollars. And when you say they expand or contract, you're meaning by printing more money or putting more money 
exactly. out in, the, in circulation. Putting more money into the economy or taking money out, out of the economy. So, uh, and they're doing that through by distributing money to banks. So, yeah, and that they, they have a that that's one mechanism. They also the the primary mechanism by which they do it is actually federal open market operations where they buy or sell government securities and uh, another topic we might get into now corporate bonds, but by buying or selling with money that they make up uh, when they're buying. They inject more money into the economy, and if they want to take money out of the economy, they simply sell some of those securities. So you've got more treasuries in the economy, and that was bought with money, and that money goes out of the economy into the Fed and the Federal Reserve's uh, vaults. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. So last time uh, we took a quick break here. And so last time we were, we were sending kind of defining what the Fed is. And I think I think that's probably one of the most misunderstood part of finance especially to consumers that are investors right mm -hmm. and they don't understand the relationship between the stock market the bond market and the fed and how and the government and how everybody plays roles in that can you kind of break down what the fed is who controls the fed and and how all that operates absolutely so we talked about fiscal policy and that's what congress and the executive branch are doing with uh taxing and spending on the other side of that equation and supposed to uh, align with that is is the federal reserve that the Central Bank of the United States, been around uh, the Federal Reserve System, has been around since 1913, and they are the banker's bank, and they're also the government's bank. So if, if banks can't get liquidity, if they can't get money to, to loan, uh, and and they need money, they can go to the Federal Reserve. That's where the the government keeps uh, its its balance its balances. Uh, and, and where it pays its bills. But the Federal Reserve basically has two jobs, a dual mandate it's sometimes called. Keep, it, uh, keep unemployment at a sufficiently low level so the econ economy is humming along and keep inflation at bay. Now, it, it would be overly simplistic to say no inflation and no unemployment. Most economists would say that's actually a bad situation to be in. So the Federal Reserve is, is usually uh, making sure that a, a natural unemployment rate somewhere around 4 or 5% is, is targeted. But more importantly, they're going to target an inflation rate. And the current inflation target, or historically, has been about 2%. Make sure that prices aren't increasing by more than 2% per year. And in fact, we had uh, a couple of decades there when prices were increasing by lower than 2% per year, and the Fed uh, decided to go on an expansive monetary policy uh, path. And the way that the Federal Reserve works, so let's talk about some of the, its mechanics. Before you go there, sure. like who created the Fed? This is, I think, important because isn't it J.P. Morgan created the Fed? And some of the biggest, wealthiest people in the world in American history actually created the Fed and were advocate for it. And there's reasons, good reasons, and also some negative reasons that they did that at that time. So that, that's a good point. Uh, go back to 1913 uh, and, and realize America was not a developed uh, economy, and the Fed was created as a quasi-public institution. So what we mean by that is that uh, the Board of Governors is appointed by Congress. That's the public part of it, and the other public part is it is designed to work in the 
good of the public to keep unemployment and inflation uh, within the right bounds. But it's also private because its owners are actually the member banks. That's where we get to it. So how many members are on the Fed? So you've got actually uh, – we've got 12 Federal Reserve District banks, and chief among them is the New York Fed. Each one of them has a president. The Board of Governors consists of seven members of the Board of Governors. They're appointed by Congress to 14-year terms. And the design of that, Brandon, is to make sure that uh, they are as apolitical as possible. In other words, uh, we, we want to exempt – this is a really good thing – we want to exempt the Federal Reserve from the political pressures of a president or from Congress that say, hey, just print a lot of money so everybody's happy right now and I can get reelected and mm -hmm. let future generations pay for it. That's the reason we have 14-year terms for the Board of Governors, because those seven Board of Governors are joined by the president of the New York Fed and four other rotating members from the other uh, 11 district banks to form the Federal Open Market Committee. And that's the powerhouse. That's where, that's, that's where the decisions get made that affect you and me and every person and every business in the U.S. economy. That is where interest rates get targeted and inflation gets targeted by saying we're going to print more money or we're going to take more money out of the economy depending on what we think needs to be done right now. So if the Fed controls how much money is being printed, how much is being taken out, but they also control what the interest rate is for that money as well, on the low end of the curve, and the market sets what the rate mm -hmm. is in an open marketplace on the long end of the curve or as it goes out. Mm -hmm. So w when, when we're analyzing the markets internally, we're setting, hey, the Fed is saying, you know, what's the, what's the market right now? I think it's 5.25 mm -hmm. is what the Fed has it at today. And this is, you know, you know, first of June. Mm -hmm. And so then the market goes and prices their margin on top of that right. for typically for a duration of time. So the mm -hmm. longer time you hold that security, the more money you're going to want for it. Right. Typically. Yes. And, and so if the Fed lowers that, then a natural thing would be so would the longer durations be lower and raised up and that's how you get the bond market precisely the theory now that that is a normal economic condition in, in which uh, we we have what is called a liquidity premium for those assets you're tying up longer so if if you're going to tie up your money for overnight that the fed funds rate which is the rate that they set is really an overnight uh, the rate at which they'll loan to a member bank, it gets repaid the next day. That's a lot different than a 30-year mortgage. Can Correct. we agree on that? Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a 40-year mortgage they're uh, talking about putting out. Yeah, now. and Japan has 100-year mortgages. Yeah. So uh, the, your, your theory is exactly right. In normal economic conditions, and let's just stick with the normal economic conditions, uh, if, if you can get 5% on your money right now, you want a little bit more than 5% on your money for 10 years and a little bit more than that for 20 and so forth. Now, in, in, in at times, that what we call the yield curve, which is, is taking that curve out through time, sometimes that inverts. If, if people think, hey, the market's a little high right now, we're probably going to re uh, revert, we often see the short-term rates being higher, higher than the long-term rates. Which we're currently in that right now. And we're currently in that. And the reason that's a concern is 
that often presages a recession. In other mm -hmm. words, we might the, the market's expecting interest rates are going to have to go down, which means the Fed's going to be expanding. And if Fed's expanding the money supply, it's going to be fighting something. What's it going to be fighting? Unemployment. Mm -hmm. All right, that's that's one of its jobs. And the Fed has modest tools for fighting unemployment. It has much stronger tools for fighting inflation if it chooses to use them. So the Federal Reserve, by buying or selling treasury bills, can increase or decrease the money supply. And the theory is that if you put more money out there, that will stimulate the economy. You take money out by uh, uh, of the economy, that will tend to slow down the economy. Right now, the Fed's trying to take money out of the economy, slow it down, make it more expensive to borrow so that businesses and consumers aren't borrowing a lot of money to pay for goods and keep inflation high. So, again, their target rate is about 2%. We were under that for years and years, which caused a lot of hand-wringing at the Fed. But now we're more than twice that rate and coming down for something that was almost five times that rate. So, in truth... The Fed, and I think it would admit this, uh, aired pretty badly coming out of uh, the government response to COVID-19. I'm not going to say COVID, Brandon. I'm going to disagree with that a little bit. It wasn't COVID that was the issue. It was the public response mm. across the world to COVID that was the issue. Uh, there are some epidemiologists who say COVID was no more virulent than the Asian flu of 1957. And if you've never heard of it, there's a reason. Mm. The, it the, was world a the world didn't shut down. Correct. We shut down more expansively than we did uh, in the horrific Spanish flu of the 19-teens, uh, which killed roughly 50 million people. I don't want to denigrate COVID. It was, it was a bad disease, and it killed people that we all know and love. Mm. But the policy response of shutting the world down for such an expansive period of time uh, really hurt the economy. It really hurt it for a season. And coming out, the Fed But didn't said, they misrepresent it? how they responded to it, calling it transitory? Yes. So let's get into that. So coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we started to get inflation, and the inflation had two causes. One truly was transit. Inflation at the end of the day usually is too much money chasing too few goods, all right? And the price level's going up because you got too much money. Supply and demand. Exactly. Right. And so uh, we're coming out of the pandemic. What did we do? We told everybody to stay at home, right, uh, because you might get sick out there. Well, people produce goods and services, so you've got fewer goods and services. What was the government doing on fiscal policy? It was sending everybody a check. Mm. Well, but there wasn't anything for them to spend that on, so they just bid the price of everything up. And at the same time, the, 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 the Federal Reserve was saying, man, we're in a terrible recession. We've got to make money really cheap. We've got to drive interest rates down, put lots of money out there. And so fiscal policy and monetary policy were both very expansionary, saying we've got to kickstart the economy. And it worked. And some of the inflation was transitory. The Federal, believe, Federal Reserve believed most of it was transitory. That turned out to be incorrect. Mm. So they believe that once we got all the ships out of um, out of the ocean into the docks and we let the dock workers come back and unload, there would be plenty of goods and we would have the right amount of money chasing the right amount of goods and inflation would go away. That was only partly right. It turns out that what most people thought was in fact right, that they'd printed too much money. Mm -hmm. 
and now we still have too much money in the economy chasing too few goods. We also have a concept in economics called pent-up demand that I think we're still seeing. Because I, I will admit that we uh, have lasted longer in this expansion post-COVID than I thought. I thought we'd be in a recession by now. And I still think we've got at least a mild recession on the horizon. Because uh, during the, uh, uh, the pandemic, people just weren't allowed to get out and eat at restaurants, take vacations. There weren't any new cars to buy. There weren't any new houses to buy. And so, and so people have this pent-up demand. And that, that means it's a technical tournament in economics, but it means what you think it means. Yeah, there's you, a lot of demand. You can't go buy anything. You, you it's just pent-up, and so it drives up everything. So, so you, get, you go out, and that pent-up demand has carried us and I believe continues to carry us. To this day, at some point that will dry up, and I think that we'll uh, begin to throttle back. And I think the Federal Reserve got terribly behind, and it printed too much money. There is way too much money in the economy, in my in, in my estimation, and they now know that. But what they're trying to do, Brandon, is take that money out and kill inflation without violating their un uh, other mandate, which is don't create a bunch of unemployment. Right. Correct. So it's crazy because we're technically in a recession. So two quarters of negative GDP growth is considered a recession yeah. from the technical term. And yes. It's funny because every every single web site that's historically printed this is now removing it um, and taking that down as saying that's official recession. But we're, we're in this weird spot where I, I've never seen anything like it where you're actually technically in a recession, but yet unemployment's still going up in in. in it's crazy. There's no loss in unemployment. I heard there's something that came out today or yesterday, and I hadn't read up on it. But CPI actually, you know, was hotter than what they expected this week. Yes. And so now we're like, oh, 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 we thought everything was coming down and it was in a good path, and all of a sudden it spiked back up. So yeah. I think the pinup demand. I think you hit the nail on the head 100. percent I think we're going to have a lot of pinup demand, but I think it's America around that's going around really, really fast, and it's starting to slow down. Eventually, when it stops, it's going to be a horrific. Uh, downturn in the economy we just don't know what's going to set that off to me i don't know if it's going to be a war with russia i don't know if it's going to be only gas and supply demands i, I really think the presidential election is going to play in on this mm -hmm. right because no no election wants to go into an election year and have the economy in the toilet right that's correct and it goes back to the point i was trying to make here that I, th I really want us to, to talk about this a little bit so if you're the fed what are you going to do yeah Right, because if you keep on raising rates, you could bankrupt these banks, and we got to talk about why, how it's going to bankrupt the banks. Yeah. We got to really define that. But then also, if you don't do it, then you're going to keep on spearing inflation, and we're going to keep on going down this rabbit hole of you know six percent inflation year after year after. And, and, and is inflation a problem? Of course, inflation is a problem because uh, there there are a lot of people who who have a lot of their wealth tied up in assets that d uh, don't necessarily increase. Their salaries aren't necessarily increasing, but the price of what they have to pay with those salaries is increasing. So, yeah, uh, Milton Friedman, the great economist, it, it said that it's taxation without representation. Mm. Uh, inflation is, is a tax on the people, and they have no say in it. It's only the Federal Reserve that has say, say in that. And so I agree inflation is, uh, is something that is to be fought vigorously, and that's why the Fed has to keep on that path. But let's talk about why that's a dangerous path. That path is dangerous because of what we already said. If it raises rates too fast, then there's uh, a quick shift from forward to reverse, 
and uh, in the car. That's not good for a transmission. The economy slows down too quickly. Employers lay off people, and this nation fears uh, unemployment more than it fears inflation simply because uh, in Germany they fear inflation more because of uh, what happened uh, right after World War One and before World War Two. We fear unemployment more because of what happened to us during the Great Depression. Depression we yeah. had 25 percent plus unemployment. So that is the that deep in our psyche is don't let unemployment happen. It's terrible macroeconomically. It's terrible microeconomically on the individuals. They don't want to do that, and they don't want to kill the banks. So uh, how can this kill banks? Well, uh, think about how banks work, uh, and uh, historically and today. In the past, uh, banks would loan money, and they would correct, collect interest on those loans, and they would make sure the interest that they're collecting is two or 300 basis points or two to three percentage points higher than what they're uh, uh, paying out on their deposits, and that spread management is how a bank would make its money. So break that down. So let's say that I collect money and I'm going to pay everybody that collects the money. So you pay a deposit into your bank. Mm -hmm. You're going to get two or three percent interest for making a deposit in your bank on your checking account, your savings account, your yeah. CDs, things like that. The bank's going to take a certain allocation of that, you know, 20, 40, 50, 60 percent, whatever the, the regulatory say is allowed to make sure there's enough cash on there. And this is where mm -hmm. we get into fractional banking, which I completely disagree with, but uh, where they're actually lending out more than they're taking in and they're, mm -hmm. you know, having that supply. And this is what one of the issues we had with SVB, but um, they're turning around and lending that back out. So I'm taking it in, I'm, I'm paying all the consumers that deposit out of my bank 3% and I'm lending it out at six and I made a 3% spread mm -hmm. and that's the profit the bank makes inside of it. Here's my question I have on this and I've asked Anthony Forster was on this podcast and he, he's a bank president, a regional bank or local bank here and he, you know, he deferred it. Of course, he should, too, because he's he's not the, the CEO of the bank, right? So there's nothing against what he was saying. He's just saying, I'm not seeing these banks increase their deposit rates back to the consumer, mm -hmm. right? So they're still lending, <laughs> right, at 7%, 8%. Now I'm seeing some of them 8.5%, 9%. Right. But if you go deposit at your checking account, you know, you're getting a half percent, maybe 1% on yeah. your CDs, right? And so they're getting better, but there's a lag there. So they they should be making six, seven percent margins. Now they still have to go back for larger loans to the Fed at that five and a quarter, and that's where they're pulling that money off on the overnight cycle, is what you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. And they're lending the three percent. That's where they get the eight and a half percent. But there's so they're wanting deposits. Mm -hmm. And they get higher margins on that side of it. I just don't know what that spread is. How much can they lend on their own deposits? You know, they got to be making more money there. Well, some are, uh, to be sure, and uh, and some banks have ended up being pretty profitable as a result. And we, we would call this behavioral inertia. In other words, uh, we're just going to keep on doing the same thing. And so a lot of depositors will not say, hey, interest rates are rising, go to their banker the next day and say, hey, that 0.01% on the checking ain't good enough anymore. You're, mm -hmm. you're going to have to pay me a competitive rate. That happens slowly over time, and the bank uh, can increase its margins by lending out at higher rates while still paying the ultra-low rate to its depositors. So some banks are doing well. Let's talk about the threat point to banks, though. If it's holding securities, let's say that it, it retained on its balance sheet an auto loan that it made, a seven-year auto loan that it made at 4%. Well, that 4% no longer looks good in today's environment. When you get 8.5. It, it, looks, it looks bad. And if they want to go sell that on the secondary market, it's going to get punished. It's going to sell at what we call a discount. 
because uh, current auto loans would be selling at you know th- three or four or five percentage points higher than that. Mm-hmm. Some banks took an ultra cautious uh, path and said, "Hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna hold any of those loans. We're gonna we're gonna sell those loans the moment we get them, so we don't have any interest rate exposure or any collection problem." Some banks uh, turn a lot of uh, of what they instead of holding those loans to consumers, they hold loans to the federal government in the form of treasury bills. The ultimate safe asset, risk free asset, is what we often call it. But what happens to the price of those $1,000 face value treasury bills that they bought when the market rate for a treasury bill was 3%? Now that the market rate for a treasury bill is two, uh, 200 basis points, 2 percentage points higher, well, the value of that security went down. Because of banking accounting rules, sometimes they recognize that, sometimes they don't. And I'm not an accountant, so I can't speak into that. But in reality, if those banks have to get that cash back out of that treasury bill, they're going to have to sell it at a discount. The more the Fed raises rates, the lower the value of those treasury bills, the loans on their book, any of those assets that banks are holding. And I think the Federal Reserve is keenly aware of that. They're the banker's bank, and they realize we can't bankrupt our banks by raising an interest rate so that their fixed income securities, the assets that they're holding, whether those were assets printed by the government or assets through auto or home loans or any other kind of loans, devalue to the extent that the bank simply can't survive it. So that's the razor that you were describing that the Fed is walking right now. I think the most likely scenario is that this month, and they'll meet again June 13 and 14, I think it's likely that they'll take a pause and say, okay, we've done enough for now, but there's going to be pressure after that, and even during this uh, June meeting, for them to hike interest rates yet again to make sure that inflation is under control. They really are in a tight spot. Yeah, it's going to be a very difficult path forward. I, I don't see a good one. And, and, and what they're saying right now is a soft landing. Mm-hmm. That's what they're the, – the best case scenario is a soft landing in it the is. recession. And I, I hope they can thread that needle in, in, into where it just doesn't slow down the economy to a certain point. Uh, but I just think there's too many outside forces with the presidential election, with the war that we have in mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine, and, and just where the whole – the feel of the economy is just really polarized into you have a lot of people leaving states, a lot of people going into other states. It, it just feels like everything is – fragmented to a certain point and i don't want to be i feel like i'm the naysayer on this i'm the i'm the optimistic on this side of it but i think there's there's money to be made a hypothetical by being cautious today and you look back at the historical average of some of these long-term investment bond structures and i can't go into actual individual bonds or anything like that on this podcast but i'm saying we've never seen a bond market you know less than i think in the last 40 50 years that were like negative 3.9 last year was negative 22 i think it's ended up yeah, something like that is negative in the mid-20s, right? Mm-hmm. Depending of short duration, what the duration of the bonds are. Right. Um, so with that being said, there, you know, what goes, it's, it's just, you know, standard deviation and you go back to the mean there, whatever goes down that low. And if we start lowering interest rates, because it's, it's very, in a very simplistic manner on a normal yield curve, right? If you start lowering interest rates again, mm-hmm. long-term interest rates are then to go back up and there's there's a good opportunity there to be able to capture not only the yield 
but also capture the appreciation of those securities. Mm-hmm. And being negative for, you know, mid-20s to next couple of years, there, there could be a, a good opportunity inside the fixed income markets uh, if it's played right. But you, you're trying to predict what the Fed's going to do, and that's a very hard thing to do. It is. Uh, that, that's called Fed watching sometimes uh, on the street of, uh, you know, what, what's the Fed going to do? And, and, and you should watch and pay attention to what the Fed is going to do because they are a really big player. Let me, let me tell you how big they are. Uh, in... Uh, 2008, right before the financial crisis, their balance sheet was $900 billion, just under a trillion or 7% of GDP. Right now, their balance sheet is $8.5 trillion, which is a third of U.S. GDP. That's a big player. So you got to pay attention to the Fed, and you've got to pay attention to them more. I really do think they're trying to do the right thing. I think g- given the mistake they made early and printing too much money, they're handling it in the right way to engineer the softest landing possible. It's just they got in such a bind uh, by creating an inordinate amount of inflation that it's really hard to slow down that much inflation. Remember, we are up around 8% not long ago. Uh, and we're still well above the 2% target. It's hard to slow down that kind of inflation without creating disruption. Now, let me use a medical example, and now I'll get to your point about bond prices and interest rates and, and why there's reason for some hope here. But um, a, a medical example is uh, that inflation is like a cancer and unemployment is like a terrible migraine. Uh, it, the, the terrible migraine is the more felt thing. You might not even know you have cancer. Mm. It'll kill you. Uh, in the long run, uh, but you feel the migraine. And so the, the temptation, the political temptation is don't pay too much attention to inflation. Don't worry about it too much because you feel it just a little bit at a time, but not too much. Whereas unemployment, you feel at that moment. Unemployment, mm. though, tends to resolve itself pretty quick, quickly within a few calendar quarters where inflation you never get back that price level. We very seldom have deflation, and when you do, it's terrible. So, inflation, Can you explain what that is, deflation, stagnation? Well, deflation is simply price levels going down. And when we have price levels going down, and you'll, you'll see prices going down at individual retailers and such when they put things on sale. But if everything's going down, gas prices are going down, food prices are going down, house prices are going down, car prices, everything is going down, that's called deflation, a general decrease in the price level. And that is almost always, always accompanied by a pretty significant recession, Mm -hmm. lots of unemployment. And so we don't like deflation. We like price levels to increase at a very, very slow, modest, predictable levels through time. We don't like inflation because of the reasons we've rehearsed, but we certainly don't like deflation. It can cause a true crisis. And stagflation, isn't that kind of where Japan was for better part of two decades here is kind of. And for those members of our listening to our podcast of a certain age, the U.S. has experienced that before. Stagflation is when you have the worst of all worlds and you have both inflation and unemployment running at the same time. That was caused in the United States by a supply shock uh, of oil. So when we had the oil embargo and suddenly oil, which was a necessary ingredient in our economy at that time for almost all production, that price was going up. People couldn't afford it. They throttled back on their spending. That caused a recession, and yet we were having to pay more for everything because the necessary ingredient was suddenly very expensive. We went through that period, and it was a terrible period for the United States. Japan's is, was a different kind of stagflation where their democracy shifted old so fast 
that you have the, the factor of production they weren't were missing wasn't oil it was labor and so you've got all these young people or you've got very few young people who can be in the labor force and actually making goods and services uh, and and so you've got less output and le- less uh, production so economic stagnation but they're commanding a very dear wage because they can mm. and so uh, and, and the US is uh, and the rest of the world indeed is headed towards uh, that phenomenon of the birth rates of fertility I was fixing to say Elon Musk has put a big huge point to this is like I think China they expected uh, China to actually go through a negative birth rate uh, in the next 10 years and right. they, they actually started this year or last year I can't remember what it was but I mean that that's could be one of the worst things. Just if you don't have, you know, the next generation's not bigger than the previous one, and it gets inverted and, inside of there, you get that upside down pyramid going. Then you're in problems because now you have a older class of non-working people um, and a younger class that's working and trying to support the older class and and just (laughs) that doesn't work out very well it it doesn't and so that in my mind is the biggest threat to not only the u.s economy but the world economy at the moment is that our fertility rate our birth rate was in 2000 uh, globally about 2.7 births per woman well above the replacement rate of 2.1 we're down in the United States, I think, to about 2.4 now and headed lower. And so uh, that means that we're, we're about to have, if, if, if this doesn't reverse, the kind of thing you're talking about. And the economic consequences of that are very significant. You've, you've got people who are older, need to be cared for, physically cared for, economically cared for by a working class that's much smaller. So if your population tree has a nice big base, no problem to have uh, older people. Uh, and uh, because a lot of workers can take care of them. But if you've got a lot of older workers and only a few people, uh, our current wealth transfer mechanism means that those younger people are going to have to pay a whole lot of tax to uh, take care of the Medicaid, Medicare, and the Social Security of the relatively large class of older people. So that's the systemic threat, I think, to the U.S. economy and the world economy. What the Fed does uh, as long as it takes its job seriously, I think it is, uh, it's going to have some transitory effects. The bigger thing to watch is that glacier. And that glacier moves very slowly, and you don't pay attention to it, but that glacier has a lot of power to move things for the good uh, or for the worse. And you're talking about the, the amount of assets the Treasury is holding as being the glacier right now. Well, the glacier I'm talking about is demography and the population right now. That is, uh, to me, the biggest thing that's going to drive economic output or, uh, uh, or, or economic recession and economic, uh, economic downturns is if, if we really truly have continuing decline of birth rates, then we're going to have a bunch of us who are retired and older and needing to be supported by the taxes of a very small tax base. And Going that's not just in the U.S. That's worldwide. So what the Fed does has very, very quick short-term consequences for uh, what we're facing. The longer term, though, is way apart from the Fed, and it's really what you know is happening uh, across the world in fertility rates. Now, what the Fed is doing, though, is very important. It is a big player. And it's raising interest rates to slow down the economy, to slow down the rate of inflation. At some point, I think, because of this demography, because uh, older people tend to lend and younger people tend to borrow. But if you've got a lot of lenders and very few borrowers and basic supply and demand says interest rates are going to go back down. And that's what I think is going to happen. And the Fed's going to have to accommodate that. 
And even if that doesn't accommodate that, the market's going to price that in anyway. And so we'll stay inverted then if we do that, right? That could happen. I, I think the Fed will accommodate and go along, and we'll have an, a, a well-behaved uh, upward-sloping yield curve. And when that com when that time comes, you can expect interest rates as they go back down for bond prices to go back up. It's been a really tough time for all investors. Your two major asset classes are stocks and bonds. And rising interest rates, rapidly rising interest rates, can punish both. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've had happen. But the converse is also, also true. When the Fed lowers rates, that tends to help both asset classes. And so uh, I do think a time will come when, uh, when demography and the Federal Reserve acting in accord uh, will bring interest rates back down to levels that we saw towards that which we saw at least pre-COVID. I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but when it does, then the asset classes should recover nicely, as you were describing. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Well, like right now, this is the, uh, the second of, of June. So we're, we're, we're halfway, almost halfway through the year here. And we're looking at a couple of things that I think is really interesting in the economics. Um, one is I think they're accurate when they're saying we're fixing to go through another technology uh, advancement uh -huh. in our society. This one's going to be way different than I think what we've had before. Uh -huh. And uh, just me and Gustavo and Ryan were sitting here on a project that we worked on. That's something that would have taken me two weeks, took me two hours today to put together. And so I think, and it's driving the market today. So if you look, look at the first half of the year, you look at where equities are, there's not a whole lot of equities that, that's participated really well in the market besides just a handful, half uh -huh. a dozen of them. Uh -huh. And they all had a common bent to them, though, a common denominator. And that's just been, they, they have some type of artificial intelligence tied to them. And, and, but it's kind of early in it. I think they're it's a false rally in, in that aspect because I don't see that those sectors inside the overall economy is actually yielding fruit yet. It's just the, you know, the rumor that they're going to and everybody's piling on. But I don't think we've seen that soft landing of the recession yet. I don't no. see that. So, so, you, so you're getting a, a half dozen to a dozen stocks that are pushing the market up, but yet the underlying economy is, I don't think, healthy right now. Mm. And so eventually, either the economy is going to get really healthy, which I don't think that's going to happen in the short term, or we're going to start seeing a correction in the overall market and see that recession coming back. Is that kind of your philosophy for, as an economist right now? And what am I not seeing that's not right? Because, I mean, I'm looking at valuations right now. Historical average on the equity market's valuation is, what, 15 times earnings? Mm -hmm. And we're trading at 23 times earnings mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And so that right there on, on, on the – just basic level doesn't sound right. And it's not like we haven't done that before and they can't sustain that for a long period of time either. But then you start looking at individual sectors and you're going, oh, yeah. you know, there are certain in individual sectors that are 30, 35 times, um, you know, forward guidance or, or so that that's where I'm going. Hey, there's pockets of huge rallies here. There's underlying economic conditions that I don't think support those valuations. And when you start discounting everything back down to what it should be, then you're looking at a good opportunity if you're in the right place to take advantage of the overall markets instead of enthusiasm, false enthusiasm of the short term. And I don't know when that short term is. That could be weeks, months, years. I mean, that short term is relative to time when you look at the market of 
that that is notoriously difficult to know when. And so it has been quipped that economics was developed to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> and uh, and there could be a lot to be said about that because economic forecasts are, are often not worth the paper they're written on. They're based on assumptions that uh, today will persist as it is, and there will be no – and I'll use the fancy term – exogenous shocks, which means something that we didn't expect uh, coming along. But something we don't expect comes along every day, mm. and it completely changes the game. Yes, uh, the historical average, if you go back to the late 1920s, uh, stocks typically trade at around 15 times earnings. So if you take the earnings of a corporation on a per share basis, multiply it by 15, that would be its average stock price over about a 100-year period. And we got to get basis, like large cap growth stocks, you got a higher multiple than value stocks. Dude. There's all these different things going sure. into But if you take the overall you, average, overall average you're, you're looking, that's kind of... You're looking at 15. I, I would remind you that we have had times when it's tra we've traded over 40 on the market as a whole. Now, in those times, we're talking about years like 1999, uh, which were forward by, uh, followed by a correction. 15, of course, is an average, and y you can go above the average if you expect good growth. And that's why I think you've seen at least a few stocks rally is the, the promise, which I think is a real promise of artificial intelligence to really transform the way that business is done. What we don't know is which businesses will really benefit yet. So you see NVIDIA and others really benefiting from the fact that they are doubled down on uh, leveraging artificial intelligence, and a handful of other players are doing that as well. I think where some real value will be driven, it's difficult to know right now, are which businesses will leverage those tools and become a whole lot more productive in lowering their cost uh, or raising their revenues so that they can enhance their profitability. I do think that that is going to come. Where and when it's going to come uh, is, is very difficult to say. Yeah, historically, 23 times earnings, that's a little high. In all else equal, you would say a correction could be coming. The thing that would keep us out of it is if uh, AI really does facilitate uh, an enormous amount of uh, growth and productivity, what the average laborer is able to do, or non-laborer, what the average capital is able to mm. do. But uh, how much promise does AI have right now? That's difficult to say. Right now, ChatGPT is something that probably everyone's logged on to and has been really impressed with its ability to generate words. Well, that's going to help some industries. Mm -hmm. Other industries, though, don't benefit from that at all. They're, yeah, they're driving. It, yeah, it doesn't so, work in math very well. It doesn't right. work in math very well. Right. It doesn't but work in engineering. It's, it's a language model. To so. kind of your guys' point about the demographics earlier, where you're talking about the birth rate falling and right. extra retirees, you think where there's like AI generated there, that that could help balance that out in a way? So the, the question is, uh, can we uh, leverage AI to replace the, the, the lack of workers? And the answer is absolutely. I think that can happen. And in fact, uh, economics has long uh, known that there are two major factors of production. It's labor and it's capital. And a, uh, labor is what you think it is, and capital is pretty much everything else. And that would neatly include technology and, art, and artificial intelligence is a subset of that category. So that can make our capital and our labor far more efficient than it would be. And, and that's, that's a hope that very much might be realized. And I hope uh, for the sake of all of us who, uh, who are on this planet at the moment uh, do get to realize how, when, who will do that best, I think is, is very open because AI is in, in such an infant stage right now. But I th do think that it holds promise 
for a long time, uh, I was an AI skeptic. It's it's early, uh, it's early stages were so fumbling and and so bad that you uh, that uh, a, a lot of computer scientists would would say we are decades away from it being able to do anything meaningful. ChatGPT changed that, and, and there are other companies that are that are delving into that, which I think can be revolutionary uh, for for the world. And so, yeah, I, it, it's possible that we don't have a significant recession or a significant crash uh, in uh, the Just because we grow ourselves out of it. Because we grow ourselves out of it, exactly. Yeah. Growth cures a whole lot of ills, uh, and you bake the right growth into the assumption uh, and the mathematical models we use to value securities, and suddenly they're, they're priced uh, fair or even low. But you do have to bake fairly aggressive growth, and uh, I would uh, I would conjecture that it's more likely that we will have a recession before AI can really uh, be realized, and that we will have to have some comeuppance for the loose fiscal policy. That the natural business cycle uh, is going to all right. People spent the pent up demand. Now they're going to start to save a little bit. That will naturally cause us to go into recession. A recession is a natural part of the business cycle, just as an expansion is. It's not something to be feared. It's just something that has to happen sometimes. Uh, and I do think we'll have one. I'm less fearful of it being really severe this time than I was uh, a year ago. I hope the landing can be soft, but I do think it'll be a landing. In the long run, I'm hopeful that AI can, in fact, uh, help us solve some of the, uh, the, the problems that we would otherwise have with lower fertility rates. But it can't solve it all unless you get robots who can come and mow your lawn and clean your house. Yeah, that's coming too. The one I actually, I think uh, the language models inside of AI is really interesting. I think it's going to actually uh, maybe consolidate a couple of things in like marketing, things like that. You're going to find those things uh, being more efficient and, and less time consuming, less employees, things like that. Mm -hmm. The one that I actually think in MKHBD, if you've ever seen his podcast, um, he actually had a live one a couple of weeks ago. And I think he went to Austin. Austin, Texas, and he did a quant, uh, it's a quantitative, not a quantitative, uh, man, I just lost it at the top of my head. I hate it when I do that. It was a, uh, it's not AI, it's the other one on there where you're taking a whole lot of models and a whole lot of randomness and it's trying to actually identify all that. And it's, no, I'll, I'll think of it here in a second. Meta analysis. No, look, look up MKHBD real quick on his last podcast and it, it says it right on. Yeah, and look, look it up right there. But that's the one I actually think is going to really revolutionize the industry is because it's going to take so many variables um, out there that we can, as humans, process that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's taking everything from actual, you know, a code of a computer. It, it's a computer modeling, a quant of, uh, quantitative – man, it's right off the top of my tongue here. Where everything's in a computer is one into zero, one into zero, one into zero, right? And uh, it, talk about quantum computing. Quantum computing. Thank okay. you. And it does the wave inside of there. It's the waveform inside of a quantum computing is what it is. He actually has one that he went to see, and I think it was in the University of Austin had it. And it was a cool, I mean, it was not a computer that you think of a big, huge computer. Mm -hmm. It's actually this, like, steel, negative, vacuum, super cold brass thing that you're looking at right. that was and it was a very interesting uh concept and and when they kind of explained how that's going to work and change the industry i just don't know how long that, again how long it's going to okay. take before it gets there right uh circle back around real quick on to what an economist does because i really want to touch on we internally inside of the way we analyze 
securities for our clients. Use economics and the economic data that you produce as a look into where the economy, using your assumptions mm -hmm. of where, where we could be going, right? Mm -hmm. And that gives us an opportunity to analyze where we think the market's going to go and what securities might benefit from that at the very core, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And so a typical economist does that how? All right. So that, that, that's a great question. Let's, let's uh, address a couple of facets of it. Interestingly, the whole uh, investments as a discipline is a subset of the discipline of finance, and finance is a subset of the discipline of economics. And it really didn't uh, exist as a subset of economics until the 1950s. Uh, when some seminal work was done in studying the stock market. And so before that, investors just kind of, uh, I feel good about this investment or that investment. But uh, Harry Markowitz, uh, a, a, a young economist in the 1950s, was encouraged uh, to study, a uh, stockbroker said, you ought to study the stock markets. No one's really done a good quantitative analysis of the stock market. And so he, followed by William Sharp, started saying, all right, can we model what's happening in the stock market when we actually take these values that are assigned to stocks and can we quantify them in some way and so from the 1950s and 60s financial theory was born and that's what financial economists use in order to study markets and and to try to figure out all right do, do things seem right here do they seem off here and uh, th those models are, are models uh, that are uh, sometimes extremely microeconomic uh, in nature. So I know that Ryan just produced uh, something regarding the debt ceiling, and he referenced one of the early models called the capital asset pricing model, where we try to use uh, some basic economic assumptions like what the Fed does in establishing a rate, and we call that the risk-free rate. And it uses what the market is getting, and we call that the return of the market, and, and then it uses the uh, risk of an individual security, and it tries to say, all right, for this firm, given where the, what the Federal Reserve has done, what the market as a whole is doing, this should be its cost of equity capital. And then you combine that with another model, which we call the Gordon Growth Model, and it says, all right, given that firm's cost of capital, given its current earnings per share, what should a reasonable stock price be for that model? And so you can say, all right, this stock seems fundamentally fairly priced underpriced or overpriced based on what that model is predicting all driven from the macroeconomic data uh, you can also take and so you can be that very specific uh, and even that mathematically specific in economics uh, with the data that's uh, driven from the very macro level down to the micro level of the firm you can also use it in more intuitive ways saying all right we, we seem to be headed towards a more recessionary environment which might means that we'll have uh, an ease uh, of securities in general, so this might be a time to uh, revise our asset allocation to some more conservative posture, or we're about to enter, it seems like, a secular period of growth, so it's time to uh, increase the risk a little bit towards equities and a little uh, less towards fi fixed income. And so you can go from one extreme to the other. You can use very specific mathematical models that have been developed by financial economists, or you can just look uh, at macroeconomic assumptions and say, all right, here's what asset classes tend to do well in an expansion versus a recession versus somewhere in between and, and target your asset allocation appropriately.
That's interesting. It's other and one, one that I think is neat because you, you, we touched on it and we just hadn't defined it. So price over earnings is pretty simple. It's what the price divided by the earnings and how many shares are yeah. outstanding, right? I think the Schiller PE, mm-hmm. I think the price over earnings is a very flawed metric inside of valuating a, a stock. I think it's uh, common in the industry and that's where it is, is what the PE of that is. But it doesn't give you a good analysis between two different securities or mm-hmm. between its own and time or the, you know, you could have a stock that's actually grown really, really fast. So it gets a higher PE because of its growth rate. And then it starts maturing, right? So the growth rate starts slowing down and it offers a dividend. So it's a different type of security. So I think it could be misleading there. So that's why I really think, and I've learned that I really like looking at Schiller PEs because it allows you to actually analyze over a 10-year average of what a stock is. And you can look at the economic data that's coming from economists and going, hey, this might make a little more sense because a security two years ago might look really cheap, but something's Mm -hmm. changed in its business model where it doesn't necessarily need to represent such a high multiple or a lower multiple. Brandon, that is a really good point. So when we're looking at the standard PE and you, and you have deep questions about that, and you should, you're looking at really a photograph. You're looking at a snapshot in time of what's its, uh, what's its price divided by the latest reporting earnings, but earnings fluctuate over time. So the Schiller seems to correct that by saying, let's take a video of these earnings. Let's see what's really been unfolding over time and, and take an average. And, of course, there are also uh, models that attempt to look at a forward P.E. ratio about what are earnings likely to be. But even uh, then, you, you, can, you can be somewhat reductive. They're all, uh, except for the forward one, and then no one really knows the future, they're all looking to the past as a matter to predict the future. It's really reductive to just take one set of earnings, which might be anomalously high or anomalously low, and, and make uh, assumptions about that. So PE is a useful tool, but it's a fairly uh, it's a fairly reductive tool. And if the uh, if the firm is expected to grow its earnings, and typically we expect firms to grow their earnings, uh, hopefully up, sometimes down, then PE becomes less and less and less meaningful, and you've got to have more powerful tools. Uh, but even the model that I just described, that the Gordon growth model, where you take uh, the current earnings, you ascribe a growth rate to them, you take the cost of capital, subtract that growth rate, that's your denominator, and you, you get a price. Even that makes some assumptions, mm-hmm. and that assumptions are typically that that growth rate is going to remain constant for some foreseeable period of time. Well, that assumption can be pretty easily violated, too. So we're always trying to use the best, mass ma- best mathematical tools we can to make decisions, but we're also having to make some assumptions about what's going to happen in the future because you can't buy yesterday's performance. Mm. You can only buy future performance, and we're all trying to take educated guesses about what that will be. I think that's spot on. And so – and what you're talking about here and what, what this conversation is all based upon is actually fundamental economics, right? Yes. And so there's another layer to that where we start talking about technical, mm-hmm. right? And the technical side of it is when you're actually trying to use probability studies inside of when things go up, they could go back down. And what's mm-hmm. the probability of things going up and down and charting these things out? We have in one of our CFAs that absolutely loves techo- mm-hmm. technical analysis. He's really, really good at it. I'm blessed to have him there. And I, I, my point of bringing it up, I don't think there is a mathematical formula that can get it right. 
I think it's a, as much of an art as it is a science. I mm. think it takes a lot of it. I think is overanalyzed a lot of times, mm. and I hate it when guys say you got to be a long term investor, mm. and I hate it when you got to say that you got to be a short term investor. I think you have to evaluate where you're at today and what you're trying to do and your risk on it on a pretty evolving. Uh, metrics right and, and the guys that don't do that is where they get bit and and it's hard to go you, you got to kind of be middle the middle of the road sometime you know you can't be too long of an investor and i know long-term investing is one of the greatest things you do and you're gonna make the most money on long-term investing uh-huh. right but that long-term investing always has this hey being it for a long period of time and you're gonna make money but the only problem is, is it doesn't take in behavioral economics, mm. right? And so behavioral economics d- will change your investment strategies pretty dramatically. If you're taking, you can only take the pain for so long. Mm. So if you're going to go down, right? And there's just some great economic studies on this that it, you know, people are seven times more fearful of the downside than they are the upside. Yes. And so you can be a long-term investor all you want, but if you're halfway through your investment thesis and you've got a 10-year time horizon inside of there, from an economic standpoint, and you go down by 50% in year four, Uh are you going to be diligent? 99% of people are not going to be diligent to stay the course on that investment strategy, even Uh though they have a high probability of Uh hitting that long-term one. So uh, that's why I think there's a lot to what we do that – that and I think one of the greatest things I ever learned at doing this business is got into it is figured out that a lot of financial advisors cannot money manage money well. Mm. And I think the whole growth over the last 20 years is coming out with separate separately managed accounts. And then you have all of these third party money managers that are mm. growing profusely in our industry. And it's less of the retail advisors managing money. And all they're doing is managing these third party money managers. And it's pretty much uh, retail guys. There's wholesale guys out there that is putting their, their clients money into these third party guys. They have a track record of doing really well. And they're getting paid a fee off of it. And I think that's going to keep on evolving there. And there's where AI is going to start fitting in, Uh Uh right? And you're you're already seeing this with robo-advisors today. I just think there's going to be a lot more changing our industry on on side of that. But it really comes down to controlling the consumer's behavior and investing is never going to be an easy thing to do. And having you on, I think, is really, really important because – a lot of people don't understand how the economics data and, and economists actually play such a huge role in finance, mm. right? They can predict where to a reasonable expectation, and that's the best model we have in today's economy, is to actually say, hey, what does our economist look like on what the Fed's going to do, mm. right? What's it going to look like on an expansion or recession of our, our government, our, our uh, GDP or our or, or nations in there? So what would be the biggest takeaway that you're looking at from an economic standpoint of where we're today and and what consumers can take away on hey you need to kind of consider this when you're investing just on a broad stroke on you know if i'm walking away from something how would how do you invest yeah great questions there's so much in there uh brandon to unpack and and we we could spend about a year (laughs) unpacking what you what you just said i think some important takeaways uh right now for uh investors is um, while y- you have uh, just questioned whether or not uh, buy and hold uh, is is always the appropriate strategy, long-term investing is pretty critical, and that's why, why you referenced behavioral economics. So uh, let me go off on that tangent just for a moment because I think that that's maybe the most critical thing we can talk about, and I'll talk about some of the other important things too. 
But behavioral economics uh, came about when uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky, I think it was in 1973 uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, they were psychologists, and they ran across a paper by a UCLA economist, and it said something in the standard economic theory, which is that the uh, economic agent is rational and his preferences are stable. And they laughed out loud and said, nobody's really like that. All right? right. We study humans. And so they've got all these theories built on this idea that people know what they want and what they want never changes. Mm. And they set out, and a lot of people had critiqued uh, economic theory, but it had gotten no ground because they had no theory. Uh, Traversky and, and uh, Kahneman, and Kahneman has two books that are very accessible, uh, and, and, the, uh, and the one that uh, is worth a read. It's, it, takes very, it, it takes a long time uh, to really unpack it, but it's called Thinking Fast and Slow, and he unpacks all of this. And so if, you, if you've got uh, some, some real time to dig into a book, it's a deeply penetrating insight in the human condition. He founded, uh, along with Traversky, what's called prospect theory, and he articulated what you just did, which is people fear losses more than they are excited by gains. And that once they get an anchoring point of their expectations, if that gets violated, they're not likely to behave rationally. In economics, we assume that people behave rationally. Mm. Uh, in other words, they do their best to get what they want, and that's true much of the time. But they could systematize through prospect theory and prove that the theory uh, had a lot of validity to it that people don't always act in a way that is consistent with their best interest. And one way that, uh, that, that they point out and behavioral economics was born out of that prospect theory is that people do tend to panic. They do tend, that when, when things start to go wrong, to what Wall Street calls capitulate and just sell. You know, it's like, oh, no, I, I, I'm not going to sell. I'm not going to sell. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold on. But once they've lost 50%, they say the end is here. I'm going to sell while I've still got 50% of my assets. History typically means at that point the stock market will tend to go back up. Mm. But people won't get back in. A lot of investors will wait and wait and wait until the market peaks. And because when it's going up and up and up, it feels safe. But you see what they're really doing. They're selling low and buying high. high. Mm -hmm. And so behavioral economics teaches us that art piece, Brandon, that you were just describing. It's managing the human side. And one of the most important things you can do as a financial advisor sometimes is just to tell people you've got to stay the course. At some point, the end will come. You know, the American economy and the world economy will fall and the world will end. But at that point, we probably won't be worried about exactly what's our investment portfolios. Until that time comes, what history has shown is stay the course. Don't uh, go with that gut instinct because the gut instinct is sometimes very wrong. It feels safest when the market is high, and actually then it is most dangerous. It feels dangerous when it's tanking, but actually then stocks are on sale, and it's a great time to buy. And the greatest investors of all time, people like Warren Buffett, whose track record is absolutely impeccable, know this, and they go contra instinct, and they actually are able to stay the course through the bad times. And so that's, that's a thing that I'm not sure a robot can ever do. Uh, it is to be that human who walks aside, uh, alongside other humans who are, are investing their hard-earned money and are terrified to see it go, that's human, that's real, and yet it's got to be resisted and it's got to be countered by the mind that says, yeah, but historically this is actually a good time to be buying. 
Right. And, and when it's up is the time when it's actually a little bit riskier. So what do I think is going to happen? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think the Fed is likely to pause rates. They might have to start hiking them again. I think eventually they'll be able to kill inflation. And at some point, they'll have to start fighting recession. At that point, uh, I would expect bond prices to start to rally and that to have a good uh, effect on the stock market as well. And so I do see good opportunities ahead. There's also a lot of what we've talked about I want to provide a little bit of a corrective to. Uh, I, I'm a fiscal conservative, conservative, which means that I am concerned about a lot of the things that are happening in terms of a policy uh, decision. But uh, I would argue against saying, well, let's just give up on America, invest solely in foreign countries. There are certainly opportunities in other countries. Yeah, but the U.S. But, is uh, still the best. Other countries have a, a huge share of problems, the likes of which we can't imagine. The empirical evidence is on the news every day. As you look at waves of immigrants from South America, from Asia, who went to South America, trying to break into this country, you don't see a whole lot of people trying to break out of it. You see a whole lot of people trying to get A lot get of movie in. stars keep saying they're going to move out of the country, well, but I never see them actually do let's, it. <laughs> uh, let's let them hold true to their word and, and, and vote with their feet. But people across the globe are voting with their feet that America is a lot better place to live than China, right. the world's second largest economy. And China has a lot of structural problems right now economically that are going to make it hard for it to keep up. I think that's why they're so dangerous right now. They know that they've got some problems with their I democracy. think Russia's the same way. I think Russia's exactly the same way. That's why they're trying to expand. Countries that are doing great, you usually don't go to war. You right. go to war when things are going uh, poorly. And so America is still a great place to invest. Of course, there are strategic opportunities internationally. But don't give up on America. And uh, America is still the place where – uh, there are, are, it's a land of unprecedented liberty and opportunity. And even though we have, uh, in my mind, more regulation than we need and too powerful a government that can mess things up despite its best intent, I still think it's the best place in the world for business, for innovation, and for investing. I think that's a great stopping point there. I, I would add uh, one, one other thing to there is I think – just there's the money's got to go somewhere mm. and a lot of people don't understand that like mm. it's not like it, it vaporizes unless something goes to zero right mm. and so typically the inflows and outflows are relevant and so you when, when we see things overpriced or underpriced you really got to pay attention to that and when you're in your investing and i think there are some pockets of great opportunity for us going moving forward really good opportunities and i actually think that active investing is actually going to pay outpace passive investing for a good while now there's some data and there's some good reports coming out from some of these um, universities that are actually supporting that for the next decade so I'm, I'm anxious to see if that actually comes to fruition or not but i'm i'm eager to see if if the last two decades of passive investing is going to kind of slow down a little bit and you're going to see these active money managers coming in here that's that sees these huge opportunities and, and strategies to be able to take in things like quantitative analysis that really comes into ai or, or machine learning or things like that. that's going to play a part in that investing side mm -hmm. so a lot of opportunities but man brian i really appreciate your time here today i think it's a good stopping spot for us and i think you hit the nail on the head i really was excited about this and i really hope you uh get the opportunity with now with your travels to go to oklahoma christian which i'm i'm happy that you get to go and a little sad at the same time because i enjoyed our time together and you're still going to be a part of us, you know, you're just going to be a little more remote when you do it. <laughs> so, but it's always great to, uh, you know, have time with you and, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you. Brandon, thank you. Awesome.